What the fuck was that? That sounded really fucked up. Alright, let's do it again. One, two, three. Oh my god, okay. That's fine. Welcome back to <laughs> We're just having such a fun time here. Um This is episode three. So many of liquids in front of me. Ridiculous. This is episode three of Brooks Brothers. Um what do you got in front of you? What liquids you got? Uh, we have water. We have coffee. I guess that's it. It's only two, but that's enough for me. What time is it there? Uh, 6.22. Why are you drinking coffee? Isn't it a bit of late? Uh, it's just sort of leftover from the day. I'm just kind of sipping it. Give me a little boost. I should, that's not a bad idea. Well, it is, nine, it is, uh, it is unfortunately 9 o'clock here. Or 9.30. It is the devil's time. Uh, night is encroaching. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Devil's time is being night time? Yeah. Oh, okay. It works. Um, so you want to introduce the book? Uh, yeah, so this today, I don't know when yours says it came out. I think it's the year 2000. 2000. Yeah, the moment. Okay, yeah, so very late. But this is a, a book written by uh, John... Aloy Sis Fahey, born 1939 in Washington, D.C. He was an American musician, steel guitar player, uh, mostly instrumentals, and he played in a sort of American folk roots music style genre. And this is an autobiography called uh, um, How Bluegrass Music Destroyed My Life. Yeah, and how many pages? It's mine's the one. Well, I think I have your book. You gave me as a you kind of yeah, regifted it. I don't have a copy with me, so you're gonna be the, our oh, guide, fuck. so to speak. Okay. Well, it's 290 pages. The book is like kind of a normal book size. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to? That's a really good note. Yeah. So those just, listening, this just book so you guys know, it's pretty average novel. It's pretty. It's a pretty regular sized. Um, book. Don't be I, scared. Don't be shy. Come on in. Well, this is, and it wasn't because we had, I had to sort of read it on a deadline, but, um, it, this is one of the fastest books I've, re- this is one of the fastest I've ever read a book. Um, Jesus. And it wasn't necessarily because I was enjoying it, though I was. It just went by really quick. I think it's because, I, th- I said this to you earlier. I was reading Moby Dick. I don't know if we want to spoil that as the next episode, but I was reading that, and the book is like a foot by a foot, the one I had, and the text was really small. So each page was almost like reading its own book in itself. And wow. so by the time I got to this fucker, um, it just flew by. It didn't take me very long. It took me – it could have took me taken me uh, – shorter than I actually had read the book or I actually took me to read the book. Wait, what? I just was procrastinating reading it for whatever reason. I don't know. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I'd give, I'd given this to you like a year ago or something. I think it was, I think it was three years ago now. And I just, wow. I, I started reading actually, I don't know what, I started reading it in 2018 and the first part of the book is about his sort of funny, perverse childhood. 
and uh, it's you know it's perverse in a funny way and both a really uh, fucked up and sad way. Uh, we'll get to that, but it just kind of goes on. I think it's the longest part of the book, and I was just like, eh, "This is funny." Maybe another book came my way or something happened, and I just stopped reading it, and you know, then I picked it back up for this shit. But okay. yeah, what is he? Really interesting. So, what does this bitch mean to you? I mean, Fahey as a musician. What does this whole book mean? I feel like we're no, jumping no, no. ahead. No, 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 <laughs> not the whole book, but Fahey and try not. I mean, you don't have to incorporate what the book says, but you know, book out of your head. You're thinking about Fahey. What are you thinking about? What What's special about him? We gotta sell Fahey well, so people pay attention to what we're. The rest of this. Yeah, so Fahey is an instrumental guitarist. If you wait, you already him. you already said all this shit. Well, no, well, yeah, I'm about to say something else. All right, be just personal about it. Wow. Be exciting. Um, if you're gonna YouTube him and like check him out, you're gonna click on a YouTube video and a song is going to start. It might have a little bit of uh, grain to it, a little bit of grizzle, and you're gonna sit there for 30 seconds. You're going to hear some teetling little bitey notes on a guitar, and you're going to go, what the heck is this? And you're going to shut it off. And that would be selling yourself and Fahey short. Because essentially what it is is like prolonged operas played on a guitar, and then it's like fusing together American blues, country, folk music in and out of it. Like a, like just, it'll, it'll just phase from one to the other like without you even noticing mm. yeah it's very I, much I his music is i've never thought of opera before but it, it definitely is um it's much more sort of it's almost like ambient music it's but it's more i mean that's kind of selling a short but it's because it's dramatic but yeah you know, it has, it so has many arcs yeah, yeah it has a lot of arcs um, but I would say it's very meditative. It's very ethereal. And a lot of the stuff that I've listened to, I consider myself a big fan. I haven't listened to him a lot. I don't listen to him all the time, but you know, I tend to forget that I like his music so much. And then um, I go back, I think, to the Dance of Death album, and I'm just like, holy shit. Like, it just totally levels me out. But not all his music has the meditative effect, but... It's almost like a, it's like an American version of Buddhist monks doing like singing bowls or throat hymns. Mm -hmm. It's so, I mean, it's so meditative. It's also so rooted. It feels so American to the point. It's like pure concentrate Americana. And it's, and it's also Americana that, like you said, some people, I think when they listen to it, They'll be like, oh, this is just folk music without someone singing. It's a little disinterested. I'm disinterested. Like boring is. Yeah. And then it gets into once you, like you said, you let it sort of surround you. It becomes you become entranced as he describes becoming when he plays. And you really have to listen like you have to. If you're not listening and you didn't remember the first movement and then by the time he sort of wrapped that motif around in the song seven minutes later and he's starting to reference that opening movement again. If you weren't listening in the beginning, 
you're not going to realize that that's even happening. So you're so you might like miss. So it's sort of annoying in the sense of you do have to like listen to this music, mm-hmm. which kind of sucks. Well, it does present a lot of challenges because, like I say, he's not singing, and I think this was one of the first musicians or whatever that I listened to where there was like no singing, and I had to just sort of pucker up and just like get over it, which was nice um, because that's given me a lot of good tools to just be able to listen to a lot of other shit um, totally unrelated to that. Yeah, so I think like if someone's listening and they want to just get into it, I would say when the springtime comes again would be a good song to YouTube and just listen to the whole thing. Try to listen to it in the foreground, not the background. Yeah, I mean, he's, like you said, he's definitely, I don't think he used the word composer, but he is actually a composer on guitar and it's not like Keith Richards going like, you know, uh, he was a composer and, or Eric Clapton, you know, the, like those guys, the guitar gods talk about each other in this really grandiose way. And mm-hmm. it's it's just kind of, I don't know. It's ultimately it's like self-serving because they're so similar to each other. But Fahey is actually no joke, no drunk Keith Richards. He is actually a composer. And like I said, it's it's kind of weird because it's veiled in bluegrass and folk music. Um which just it obfuscates how crazy everything going on is in it. Mm. Um, but sometimes it can be pretty, um, you know, familiar kind of folk styling and stuff. But he always subverts everything in the, in the same way that Jerry Garcia might uh, subvert expectations with where he's going next. I feel like Fahey takes that and makes it, part of every aspect of the composition so it's um you know time signature key whatever melody that's just to me like jerry garcia just is really insane with guitar melody in that sense of always defying what you expect and that's what kind of takes you someplace but Fahey kind of expands it and i think he mentions a lot he mentions jerry garcia a couple times in the book Mm. and i think it's in a sort of um, I don't know the word, uh, resentful way. He just thinks he's kind of overrated, I think. I couldn't tell if, I it was, if he was resentful or, you know, lauds him or whatever. Because so yeah, it, you've, you read this book way more recent than I, so I'm sort of going to be like, you're sort of, ha- you have to lead the way, and I'm probably not going to remember a lot of the deets. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, before we, I think we're starting to get in the book, I feel like, a couple more fun facts. Factoids. Yeah, I mean, you know, this book is kind of just about, it's not really linear. It is to a certain degree. You know, it starts with his childhood. Is this a fun fact? Um, this is not no. fun. No, okay. Well, you're sticking to... <laughs> I just want to get I just want to get this out of my head so I can forget oh, about yeah, remembering yeah. it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so. Stick it to him, Tommy. This might have been where I found out about Fahey. I'm not sure like where that journey began, actually. But fun factoid, uh, I think I believe it's Blind Joe Death album, or uh, is it? Yeah, it's the alternate cover to Blind Joe Death, I believe, or Death Chance, um, is seen in Clockwork Orange when um, Alex in that famous record store scene when he's sort of 
walking towards the camera and he's walking uh, camera right then up wow. into the counter. There, you can see a 2001 soundtrack album and then to the right of that, I believe, you will see a John Fahey album in prominent framing. Um, so probably a direct reference from uh, Kubrick, um, noting that Stanley, you know, probably liked John Fahey music or something. Damn, that's that's probably the biggest sell we're gonna have in terms of being like, whoa, who is this? And also, I thought of another good sell. Um, <laughs> I I think, and this is kind of crazy, and maybe it will be too much of a tangent, but in terms of creating that American soundscape uh, thing, like in the way, well, this is like jumping ahead, but the way Moby Dick is sort of uh, creating a kaleidoscope of, of American nautical culture, I feel like John Fahey beat the Beatles to that thesis of like American musical history on display uh, with such like uh, ferocity Authority. and like, uh, and what is that called propheticness like there's so much of it weaving in and out of itself uh, it just yeah. overwhelms the viewer with the history that's pouring on top of them as I always to think of one that genre. reminds me of uh, that scene in Toy Soldiers where the main toy the good toy not the Tommy Lee Jones guy yeah the Tarzan type guy Tarzan I I wish I remembered his name. It's like Reptar or something like that. Yeah, it's like Colnar. Yeah, Rugi. <laughs> Pierogi. Uh, he Pierogi. finds the kids. He finds the kids' computer, and he starts clicking through Wikipedia or something, and all the images start flashing like at a million miles per hour, and it's like, like some Hans Zimmer music starts playing. Um, mm. I, that's kind of what Fahey is doing, and I get the sense from his songs that. He, I mean, it's true for any sort of writing, but it, it is really, it feels like he improvises most of it straight up when he's writing it. It's not really that meticulously planned. The music? Initially. Ayo. Okay. I I would disagree based on the fact that if you, if you just pick one song out of Fahey's and you start to study it, you'll realize he's like taking... He's modifying and transcripting classical uh, music. Like some, he'll take some random Brazilian uh, ballad, and then he'll take like a, a a hymn, and then he'll take right. like a Skip James riff, and he will and he will structure those and place them in the same key so he can or not. It'll like change mm -hmm. keys, but he'll like structure those together. So I think I feel like he's really plotting these songs out, and that's what uh, makes it so interesting. Is they feel so off the cuff and maybe and that's relaxed. yeah maybe that's just the cool part of it but yeah you know he's like pierogi from toy soldier he's clicking through all of music and while he's writing this um, just to put it in layman's terms i guess yeah it's almost like ooh, it's like the social media page of music in a shitty kind of way to say it but <laughs> you know how you could be overwhelmed with like the fact of dozens of lives if you're just scrolling through social media it's like a like, transcendent oh that's like a transcendent uh second grade teacher trying to he like thought of that and he told the class this is gonna make my class love me he's like clicking through all of social media and then he takes his that's I what get called, it. we finally get it professor that's yeah they call their teacher in second grade professor i always think of uh they're smart kids 
teachers, teachers in, uh, I guess it probably happens in any school, but when the subject of social media or phones is brought up, they go, they like take out their phone from their pocket and they go, because we got these things nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And they sort of like wag it. And then, yeah. they, and then maybe they, the when wag. they're put, when they're putting it back in their pocket, they sort of whiff it and you're sort of looking at that and then they eventually get it in and you go, okay. Um, anyway, I don't know if I have any good cells. I feel like you have much more rich understanding of, and just, um, you know, you listen to a lot more sort of Delta blues kind of oldies, like actual, like really old blues shit. Um, that's another, maybe another good tease is, um, for the blue, if blues people are interested in this is, um, uh, no, let's save it. Let's save it. We'll get to it. Okay. I think we should just start getting into it. And I think you should lead the way because you just (laughs) read it and I'll just, and I'll talk about it as if we get to a part that I do remember and I want to highlight. Okay. I'll bring it up. It's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah. So take it away. All right. So the book, like I said, it's more of a collection of, you know, the title on this on the front says stories by John Fahey. It's not really a cohesive narrative. Um, and it's not even really sort of, it is auto fiction as it were, but it is mm, uh, Define auto fiction. I don't know. What it's like, you know, Jack Kerouac writes about his life and then it's fictionalized. You know what I'm saying? It's true, but it's, you know, the names are changed and blah, blah, blah. Ah, like Dylan, Dylan's autobiography. Yeah. That's probably the truest sense of, auto fiction because most of it isn't true but you know most of this shit is true um aside from a few ones that are obviously not true but um yeah so it's a basically about until about i think three or four chapters in it starts in his childhood um and then after that it sort of starts to jump around his adult life um it doesn't really go past probably 1972 which is, you know, the point at which his career started to kind of not do that well. Um, yeah, he started, well, he started getting into like, uh, just sort of like rehashy kind of stuff. And then eventually he tried to pivot into like this electronic or electric guitar version of what he was doing before. And, and I've listened yeah. to those records and I don't know, they just, they're good. Like, uh, I think, uh, what is it? Looking at the page of names here. Womb Life, I think, was the one I liked. It's not important. Um, <laughs> but it just, I don't know. Yeah, not important. We don't want to trash well, him. Let's his, keep going. No, I mean, it's just a lot of, you know, if you go down any YouTube comment scroll, it'll say something to the effect of, this guy knew real pain, and you can hear it in the music. So, <laughs> and that's kind of true. Um, you know, like any sort of folk music person um he got uh super into he wasn't into heroin he was an alcoholic um was a diabetic i'm not sure if it was through his whole life but he eventually died of a, a quadruple bypass surgery yeah 2001 but from about 1989 to i guess till his death um was like obviously the worst I mean, it wasn't because it was just sort of like a surgical thing, but um, yeah. he had this weird fucked up spine disorder hmm. that caused a lot of pain in his back. 
So then he um, started diving uh, back into not heroin, Water. not oh, her- okay. not right. heroin, but almost like sleep sedatives and stuff like that. Um, where are you? Where did you get this information? Uh, good old Wikipedia. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're just reading that now. No, I'm not reading it right now, but um, uh, yeah. So okay, yeah. And he was doing pretty well, I think. I think he was doing actual. I think he sort of recovered, um, and then, yeah. and then he ultimately died uh, through sort of a health surgery um, thing. Surgery. But he had like four wives in his entire life. Um, meeting the meeting of one of those is told i think his first wife connie is told in the beginning of the book um yeah I'm that sorry. was actually it's told, at, it's told at the end of the book it's told at the end of the book yeah but that's you know he he jumps probably as far as it like i said to 1972 and then that's in sort of the middle and then at the end he ta- he jumps back to like 1958 or something when he uh seduces his first wife and stuff or whatever courts yeah on the note of like his love life that was one of my favorite moments i think in the book i think it's early on when he describes his first sort of his first love his first love and the way he describes it he says um he felt his feet landing on the earth for the first time like he just sort of felt like a phantom before that um and i I really like that yeah like that it's it is one of the best um chapters I agree with that. It's called April and Orange, I believe. Um, and he's sort of wandering around a pool or something. And he walks up to this young redhead on a bench. And he's sort of just like, is it okay to sit by you? Um, and then she, he tells her that he's got this philosophy scholarship. We should have brought that up. He had yeah, so a, he studied philosophy. He had blah, a full blah, blah. he had a full ride to Tulane on philosophy because he wrote this amazing dissertation on Freud or something. Um, and he's telling this girl that, and then she says, "You're not." She says, sort of like suddenly, she says, "You're not going to New Orleans or whatever." And he's like, "What the fuck? Why are you saying this?" And she's like, "I just know, John." Uh, you knew his name. Wow. Yeah, and then you know he's working at a gas station overnight. Yeah. He's working a night shift at a gas station, and during his breaks, a hooker uh, is also on her break, and she is sitting in his car with him, and she's super into um, sort of Buddhism, sort of that same kind of yeah, cosmic shit. Um, and he tells her this experience, and she's like, she knows, and she, uh, I don't know her name, but uh, the redhead, she, the hooker says this girl knows that you fell in love with her um like sleep on it and go back to her you know meet her again um and then when he sees her again at the pool um he basically like you said it that sort of really i got mariachi music i'm gonna close my window pretty profound um pretty profound description of of falling in love and stuff um and he ultimately doesn't go to new orleans because you know all his all his uh his objection objectives in life totally get fucked up by this girl in a good way but um yeah Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great chapter um yeah and it's also important to note i think 
Hey guys, skip to the timestamp 2504 if you want to skip descriptions of uh, child abuse and sexual assault that's in the novel. Um, that's 2504. But um, his dad, like, him, I think, several times when he was a kid. And this is pretty, this is really intense, so skip ahead if... 2504. Um, yeah, now, a couple minutes. but he holds a gun. He uh, John is still a kid, and he tells the rest of his family that his dad's doing this to him. And uh, they don't really believe him, I guess. And then the dad takes him up into the... Uh, I, should, I shouldn't have gone into this. This is too fucked up. Uh, but he holds a gun. He holds it. a gun. He holds a gun to John's head and says, "Like, I can kill you at any moment if you talk about this again. Like, I'm going to kill you." Um, and that is, I think, that's important to. It is actually important to note. Obviously, I mean, it underpins kind of everything about John. Unfortunately, um, he he led a very, uh, uh, you know, he abused alcohol and drugs because of this trauma. Um, it's a central aspect of, I think, if there is any sort of um, climax of the book, it's when he's, in terms of that, in terms of his trauma, he is um, like viscerally, not really coming to terms with it, but facing it again, uh, like a lot longer, farther into adult life. Um, He's fishing with Booker White, I believe. Yeah, Booker White. Who was a famous blues piano player, I believe? Or was that? Uh, Steel, like. Uh, or was that? No, that was Resonator. Roosevelt Sykes. Yeah, he played like Resonator. Yeah, he was a guitar player. Um, but yeah, he's he's drinking whiskey with, with him, with Booker White. And Booker goes into town, I think, to get more whiskey. And John's by himself fishing, and he catches this enormous fish. Um, well, he doesn't, he, he gets it on the line and he's like, there's, is this like an alligator? Like this shouldn't be in the water. Um, and he's literally wrestling with this fish for almost two hours, I guess. And he can't reach for, he can't reach for his pliers because if he does, the, the pole's going to fly out of his hand. So he has no choice but to wrestle this thing. And it gets to a certain point where he's so fatigued and he's so drunk on whiskey that and just you know drenched in sweat and getting you know uh just gutted by mosquitoes he starts to hallucinate um and then all these memories that's when he tells the story of uh, he references it earlier but he really goes into that amount of excruciating detail with the or his dad um and this happens this intense hallucination where you sort of you know, like I said, just revisit that memory or visit that memory. Um, and then it's kind of obscure how it, how this, um, fishing incident ends just, but he sort of passes out and book of white, I think comes back and wakes him up and he's like, I got more whiskey. I got more whiskey. And he's like, Oh man, Booker, I just wrestled this fish for like two or three hours. He's like, but it got away, it got away. And then Book is like, no, it didn't, John. It's like right there. And it's like a huge, it's called an alligator garfish. And he said it was 12 feet long and like three feet across. And so, uh, and Booker just says a bunch of like loving things to John, like everything's going to be okay. 
Um, and he then almost he kind of became like a surrogate father for him. Yeah, he, and then, he did teach him a lot about guitar playing too. Yeah, and then he takes a forty-five out of his uh, his back waistband and shoots the fish like three or four times in the head. Booker does that, and I guess Booker was a convicted murderer. Um, but that's not really important. But it's just kind of funny. But uh, and then he chops off the uh, fish's head and throws it down, and all these vultures go and get it. And you know that story is probably true, but when I'm saying it back now, it does feel a lot. It feels just like a perfect fic- uh, dramatization of sort of struggling with you know the fish is obviously you know whatever the horrible memory of his father doing all that stuff. Um, but it's so, and it actually makes me think you saying book, a father, uh, yeah, kills kills. You saying a father? Fish. If there were any father figures in the book, it's his best friend growing up. Named Eddie. Um, mm. Is Eddie the guy who, sort of right after the beginning uh, section, he sort of jumps ahead almost to like seemingly like 30 19. years? Oh, yeah. That's that's the latest it gets in the book. Yeah. So, um, is, uh, yeah, that scene with uh, yeah, he the, dies, his friend with he dies AIDS. Of, right? Yeah, he dies of AIDS. But Eddie is sort of the gang leader that John's a part of growing up. And he's like super into Hitler and. They have this thing called the Azalea Penis Club. Mm-hmm. There's like a shitload of really funny um, names for they're yeah they're obsessed with Hitler. Uh, yeah, so like the book f- starts like a weird uh, Sandlot. Yeah. It's yeah it's a perverse Sandlot, um, really perverted. And then you know the first chapter of the book is called Jews. Like <laughs> yeah. it's it's not anti-Semitic really. It's very tongue in cheek. Um, I think we should have brought that earlier. Brought that up earlier. Just in terms of John's voice, I guess he was really known for writing funny liner notes, like really extensive liner notes. But how would you? I guess you. I guess you haven't read the book in a while, but he has this voice that's super dry. It's very matter of fact, but that combined with the situations he finds himself in, it really balances out. In a, in a super funny way. It almost has like a Norm McDonald, I would say, is like yeah, the closest. Yeah. He's voice. just like he's just like a level headed straight shooter. You know, he's just kind of got that okay, like attitude. Um so I I wish I I, I don't know if I have any. Well he's like he's like level headed and he's like calm and he's tough. And then he also kind of leans back and you just know that he has a bunch of sort of like intellectual arsenal that he could employ but he usually doesn't yeah. but so he yeah, has I mean, this sort of like um vishnu like presence of he could totally destroy you if he wanted to right. but he never does like he's sort of uh a Honestly, nice guy generally yeah he's he's a smooth operator but he's not necessarily cool but i think if you watch any interview of his you know immediately when he answers, like the tone of his voice is so funny and just. Well, it made me play faster. A lot of my songs faster. I hit on stage and. Uh... It really does come through in the book, um, but in terms of him being cool, like all his, uh, particularly, probably like from nineteen seventy to seventy three, all his concert videos, when he's playing guitar, his head is is you know his nose is yeah. like perpendicular to the floor it's facing the floor well we got to talk about well let me just he, he has this huge like huge comb over it's one of the most heinously yeah. 
fucked up comb overs like ever <laughs> to the point to the point that it's like brave. <laughs> yeah. It's like viscerally fucking disgusting. Well, actually speaking, of, I mean he loves his one of his favorite sort of motifs in all his music is death and that's what his bald head reminds you of when you're staring at it. It's just sort of like spooky skeleton and maybe that's what he's going for. I don't know about that. I don't really you know, some people say it's like mortality light or something, but it's, I don't know. It's just, it's, uh, it gives me the sense of you're dealing with a genuine person there. You know, this isn't a rock star who's skating by on their looks. Um, and I feel like we're going to get super off track from what I was talking about before, but, um, you know, the whole book isn't a rock and roll biography really. It sort of is in some respects in terms of name dropping and stuff, but it's more of a spiritual sort of ethereal take on a rock biography where um, Fahey's more sort of farm-fed. He had the knack for... um, It was really... He wasn't sort of obsessed with career. He brings that up a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. He Um, almost sabotaged himself a lot of the time. Yeah, especially, I think, later. I'm getting him confused with Hank Williams, but... Um, well, actually, maybe that's a good time to bring up one of those funny anecdotes. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, we get, we'll get to that. But, um, Wait, the, yeah, so he's more just kind of... It. He's going through life and enjoying it in in a subtle way. Um, but I, I wanted to finish the thing about the uh, the father figures. Um, oh, if he, shit. If he, he says he loves his parents still in the book, but... Um, the the chapters are written in a in a way that he doesn't reference any he doesn't reference um, stuff that's brought up in previous chapters like you would know it already like he'll say you know Booker White in a later chapter after the fish is caught and he'll mention something that because it's, this these are basically a bunch of whoa these are basically a bunch of excerpts. Whoa. Uh, they're you got to address why you say "whoa." There was just a virus alert, and I was like, "Oh, oh shit. shit!" It was just all—it was just a loud sound. But um, yeah, if he's gonna have any father figures in the book, it's mostly black musicians. I think um, the ones I, the ones I can remember off my head are Roosevelt Sykes has one of the best. My favorite parts of the book, what I've been using, is called. Uh, he talks about honey, um, mm, which I can yeah. go into. I can go into more i guess but yeah i haven't thought about that but that was one of my favorite yeah there's he talks about honey when um john is getting pissed off at this sort of uppity uh relevant he calls him in a sort of satirical way uh folk singer who had was sort of a one-hit wonder and he asks roosevelt at this folk festival that john's at he's sitting next to him and he says you know hey sykes can i go on uh, earlier so I can get to bed and do a show because I have a show the next day and Roosevelt's like yeah sure that's or he's like yeah that's fine They're like go right ahead and he's like an old man at this point and this really pisses off John and then John's just like he goes to Roosevelt and he's like what the fuck are you doing like you're an old guy like why are you okay with that and then he sort of goes in this really great uh kind of explanation about how he remains calm and or he doesn't let the I don't even know it's kind of just a way of ultimately of staying sweet and smooth is what he says but um, he goes 
set a little time aside every day and just sit somewhere quiet and think about honey. And before you go to bed at night, always think about honey, at least for a few minutes. And then he would just, he keeps kind of saying stuff in this kind of unspecific way, but he says honey enough at the end of a sentence that it becomes almost like a mantra. So it's sort of like this blues mantra this guy teaches him of, of remaining calm and stuff. Um, but then, you know, so that's another fire of your, and then Book of White. Um, and then this guy at the end of the book called Elmer Williams, who was a black guy that he uh, played in an interracial sort of bluegrass band in, uh, in uh, he's from Washington, D.C., I think, or Maryland. Um, and that's where he sort of has the most, uh, he doesn't teach him really anything in the sense of a father figure, but he is sort of a guiding presence, I think, in terms of that was the guy that got him in the chair to jam with other musicians and sort of find himself and, uh, understand his skill and stuff. Cause he talks about. You know, I uh, when I started playing with them, I kind of started to understand like, oh shit, I'm I'm really good at guitar. Um, but yeah, that's kind Maybe of a we sweet should well, should we bring up the his sort of like trance um, method? Yeah, he calls it the high plane of vib- vibrationary presence when he plays guitar. That's where he's trying to go. Yeah, you got to talk because I've just been talking. Yeah, you've been going. Uh, so the <laughs> so John probably had due to the his father's trauma and everything. He probably had a sent uh, sort of, and he was in based on his quiet presence. He probably had some anxiety he was always dealing with. And, uh, that would sort of manifest in, in stage anxiety. So he really early on, um, started actively practicing, um, putting himself in a meditative trance like state whenever his fingers were touching a guitar and so he worked on that. So automatically, whenever his fingers were on a guitar, he would sort of enter that trance state. And you can see that on the YouTube clips and stuff. Like he's he's not um, he's always just kind of rocking back and forth, and he's just losing. Uh, uh, I don't know how you would say it, but he's losing himself. He's losing himself, and he's just kind of becoming this guitar player um, outright, which I think reminds me. Um, what what's the advice uh, Roy Buchanan he, Roy Buchanan's a famous Telecaster player um, what's that advice that Roy Buchanan gives him I was going to bring up um, maybe he said that in an interview but he doesn't he brings up Roy Buchanan in the book but he just mentions him in this really cool way because I think Roy Buchanan is probably in that same pantheon like top three for me as best guitar players yeah, Roy Buchanan transcendent for, guitar players for people who don't know his one of his songs plays at the end of the departed yeah it's that the movie. when the when the mouse cross we draws him like ruins the entire movie <laughs> <laughs> when the mouse walks across like the most blaring yeah obvious dumb metaphor. metaphor yeah it's like jesus christ it's almost kind of funny i guess and the, the whole movie is kind of funny or um, like comic or graphic novel or something. Yeah, but he just talks about um, he's actually hanging out with a guy named Paul Vestine, who was a guitar player uh, who influenced Jimi Hendrix a lot. Um, John mentions in a really cool way. He's, he sort of he does name drops in a tasteful way. Uh, Paul Vestine influenced Jimi Hendrix a lot, and um, 
Fahey met him in California really briefly at a show uh, where Vestine was playing. But he was in a band called Can Heat, uh, who, you know, has gone to the country. And I think they had more, they were more of a hard rock blues band overall, even though like, gone to the country. Yeah, it's kind of a chiller, but yeah, he's, so he go, he meets him. I think he's another one of his uh, seminal sort of musician friends that sort of is ha- his herald. Um, but they just, I mean, this is so long-winded. He just drives up to some, he just mentions he drives up to a shack, and that's where Roy Buchanan was selling beers or something. And then Roy Buchanan mentions like, oh, I like the way you play guitar. Or I don't even know if he says is that. that. I think... Yeah, I think Fahey just says he was a really good guitar player. What? Okay. Well, yeah. that reminds me of another one maybe to bring up then is he, my favorite, like, funny, and also, like, um, maybe pertinent to one of the themes, I think, of the book is uh, John sort of, like, waxing on what what authentic music to him means is the anecdote about, um, I believe it's the guitarist for Almond Brothers, and he and he's sort of friends with him. As, as as the antidote starts and then he it's like in this abstract way he says i can't remember his name but he says the guitar player for allman brothers starts to get obsessed with plastic and furniture oh no that's like, paul Vest, that's paul vestine from candy that's the candy guy yeah, yeah okay so he so he says he sort of loses him to this world of and he describes it as like literal plastic he becomes like fascinated by literal plastic and yeah. I think that relates to Fahey. He, he looked at his music as very organic and like, uh, like, like uh, I think he says like dust and snakes and like wind and water. Um, whereas the candy guy just got obsessed with plastic. And that was always something John was trying to avoid in his music was, I guess how he looked at it was plastic music. And I don't know, like, I can't. They, how do you define I, I don't, that? But. Yeah, I don't know how to interpret that really, but I was trying to I while mean, I was reading it, and I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is trying to say here. It's more I, just it, like... I related to it. It made sense. Like, sometimes I'm listening to Can Heat, and I'm like, fuck, they just keep doing, like, some yeah. minor pentatonic. It's kind of like Joe Bonamassa, yeah, um, but yeah. not that bad yet. I but think, I it think was, that's what it John's was, tapping into is, like, don't be like Bonamassa. I think it was him trying to say... Vestine was a real shredder and he was really just going for that plastic sort of just get well it's perfection it's like plastic is perfection whereas John wasn't interested in perfection and yeah I lost my train of thought because he fucking interrupted me well okay (laughs) uh yeah so that's when he meets I think that's the last name drop aside from the end of the book. He, I guess, per, uh, pertorts, I don't know what that word is. He Re- claims to have seen the last Hank Williams show ever. Right. Which is, so it was like, oh, fuck, this has to be the coolest name drop or something ever. And because he mentions, he mentions well, it's like it being, to, It's like having like an anecdote about like seeing Jesus or something. It feels very... yeah. Um, well, it's funny special. you say that because that's the, you know, I referenced there's a fictional part of the book. Um, Hank Williams comes to him as an angel um, and gives him advice about 
<laughs> how to deal with his this girl Connie's who he's going to go and marry. Uh, he doesn't know that yet, but she doesn't really like him, and she has these weird rumors about her getting, um, like I don't know, some weird rumor about her. Right. And he's just like, just go tell her that you know about that. You know it's not true, and also tell her that I know that she knows I'm her father, and then. And so then that ends, and then he goes to Connie, and he goes, "I know Hank Williams is your father, is your true father." And then you know her actual parents walk in the room, and they're like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> but she know, I mean, it's fictional, and it's like fantastical. It's almost like a a fever dream, but she's like, "How do you know that?" <laughs> like she she's like, "Yeah, he is my actual dad." Um, but yeah, he he his la- he uh, portraits portraits to having seen. Uh, Hank Williams' last show. What is that word? Retorts? Pertorts. Pertorts. Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's set in stone. It's a a riverboat show, and Hank Williams is super drunk. And the way he describes it must... It had to have been true because it's so fucking electric. Yeah, it's perfect. This is the way he does crowd work because Hank Williams comes out and he's like... God damn y'all to hell! I'm not doing this. Yeah, he's like sweating, and, then, and, and the crowd just, and the and the crowd goes fucking wild. Like in yeah, a so, Hank way. Williams, for those who don't know, is a famous um, country Dude, people musician. People know who Hank Williams is. Um, I saw the light is one of his most famous songs, and he's known for his alcoholism and his like bombastic uh, religiousity. Like he was very religious and devout and drunk and impassioned, and he would play at the Grand Ole Opry, and he had a sort of fiery. Um, career that ended very quickly. Um, yeah, and it he, was about to end. He died in like a back of a car mm-hmm. shortly after this concert, I guess. But um, yeah, he he says like "damn you all to hell" basically, and then the crowd goes, "Oh, give us one song," and then he sort of plays it. And the way that John tells it, you don't know if Hank is sort of doing this as crowd work, but it kind of feels like it's not because, like you said, he was totally out of control at that point, but. Yeah, he Very plays a few man, I would say. Hank Williams. He he plays a few songs um and you know, his description of it is just like he was 10 times better than what you hear on the records. Yeah. Like live. And then his band sort of, you know, he's playing solo on acoustic for the first two songs and and in between them he's sort of hinting that he's going to walk off stage or he's going to kill someone or like fight someone in the crowd. And then his band is standing behind him the whole time. And they sort of just immediate. They don't even know. Like Hank doesn't even tell them. Sort of in the Dylan way nowadays, doesn't even tell them when he's about to play or like what key it's going to be in or whatever. Or like he Jack just goes, White does that, I think. And then he just fucking drops in, and John's like, they know ex. They they are completely in tune with Hank. Like they know exactly what yeah. he's he's about well, believe, to do. I believe they say he rips into. He starts singing his like um, scary songs. He sings Angel of death which the lyrics are like when the angel of death comes down from the sky um and reap reap your purse soul when you go to die or something like that it's like really uh hank was like close to or like thinking a lot about death that night yeah he he talks about how hank must have been obsessed with or he was obsessed with death he was always looking at a it was apparently at marshall hall maryland in an amusement park and he played on a barge but and also, that makes me think uh, probably Jerry Garcia. Maybe the resentment for Jerry Garcia is the fact that Grateful Dead maybe stole a bit of 
Fahey's uh, aesthetics because he sort of had that like death skeleton thing before they did, and he was such that you know he started from that bluegrass background. Yeah, this like is this is a good to, part of it. So I guess he starts. He goes. So the crowd convinces him, and he goes, "Okay, just one." And he goes, "Oh well, hell." I guess I can give you one song, but just one, that's yeah, all. And the crowd goes, hooray! And then he starts singing, here he starts playing, but he's not singing. And he plays like a 12-bar blues song over and over um, for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then he starts singing, and he sang a few verses, and then he came to an abrupt halt. And it, he says it was incredibly surprising and intense, so much so that it was frightening. After he stopped, there was a silence for a long time. We were all hypnotized. Um, and then there was clapping and yelling, and he started singing some other song. His band joined in. And I guess he never missed a beat or a note. Uh, the way he just, I'm just going to talk about, just say the quote from when he describes the band knowing him. Uh, yeah, and then he just walks off stage. And he, he parts with, that's enough for now. Maybe I'll see you later. Maybe. God damn. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, that is honestly, for me, if I knew, if someone told me, like, there, he went to see the last Hank Williams show, and it's, I don't want to, you know, they'd say, I don't want to spoil it, but it's told in the most, like, electric way possible. Obviously, I, I got some parts of it. Actually, I just read it out of the book, but you have to do experience it because it is you know he hypes it up pretty well in the book but yeah that was a great um, great description yeah no it's super funny and then Hank Williams comes back um and you know it's it's really poignant that he ends the book even though I don't think he like I said it, this is a person um sort of collecting all these separate pack uh paper uh package uh what's the word packets of paper, which were all these stories mm -hmm. he had collected in his life and sort of piled into a nondescript sort of box or something in his garage and his friend found him. So that's what the book is. Um, and I think that he did a really good job of putting them in the most linear sort of way possible or poignant way. But it, it ends, like I said, with that sort of Hank Williams angel visiting him and Hank had the same kind of demons um, he had the same thing that John had. He had a chronic um, back illness or something that led him to a bunch of sedatives and alcohol abuse. And, um, and you know, John was 61 when he died, but like you said, I think a lot of his songs are about death. Yeah, but he had it from a young age. I don't know if, in, like, I feel like that's a sort of, it's like too mythologizing to do. Like people do that with Kurt Cobain where they're like, he had a stomach, like a burning stomach ulcer or whatever in the beginning of his career. So like, that's that's why he was angsty. I don't know, that seems like too, well, too simplified. I think it's I think it's sort of Occam's razor because- Occam's. It's just, um, they're, they're really smart guys. They have a lot of ambition and energy. They, they've done something with their lives. And it is just as simple as having an excruciating chronic illness that is their downfall. And obviously, right. that's, it's not just the only thing. You know, they have some 
sort of mental illness or trauma going on, but... Well, I would say a better way to put it, to make it more elusive and probably closer to reality is like their physical pain was only acted as a as a like metaphorical physical reminder of what they were contemplating like it wasn't sure. that that was causing that but it but it was that constant tapping on their their forehead that would cause them to think about that because it was reminding them but i, well, I wouldn't say it like it causes it in a sort of like first cause it's not the first it could, cause it's just a reminder it could be the it could be the other way around um i think you know, people say, like, don't think so much. You're going to get an ulcer. So, and it, for Hank Williams, I think it was some sort of geni- uh, g- genetic disease or something. Well, he had a, was, yeah, it was like a curved. Um, yeah, it wasn't. Or, if you look at him with his shirt off, he had like a curved spine. Yeah, and he was doing really well. And then he, f- I guess he fell while he was hunting, and it sort of kicked it back into action. Yeah. Well, another um, good thing to know before sad. we move on from Hank is that John uh, says we have like of, eight. We have like eight minutes left. We should go. We should go further than an hour. But um, he says one of Hank's or John's one of John's favorite Hank songs is uh, "Singing Waterfall," and there's a few versions of it. But the version yeah, I yeah. think he was probably um, listening to most is there's this like really bare acoustic version. Um, I can only find it on YouTube. It's not on the Hank. Uh, singles compilation album that ha- is the only album that I can find that has it. Um, the only one that I can find with that acoustic solo rough version is on YouTube. But anyway, I think that's the one he was listening to. And it has a lot to do with like meeting your love uh, in the song. It's like he's meeting his love beyond a waterfall, beyond the blue um, because he yeah, met, that's, he that's met the her last, at a waterfall. That's on the last page of the book. Oh okay, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I, I that's like a super a spoiler song to check out. <laughs> um, it's a good. Well, you could yeah. almost take this book and as you're reading it, it's a great sort of little musical playlist that you could build and like put into Spotify and like actually it's, listen to. Yeah, it's. I did that to a certain degree. Like when he started mentioning, you know, Sykes and uh, Booker, and I think that's uh, Skip James is a huge part of the book. We didn't really mention, but. Yeah. Um, that's kind of relevant to, uh, okay. I, I just totally changed the subject from a point I was, about, I was trying oh, to, no. um, but I don't know. Okay. So he was, uh, he was a ethnomusicologist. Basically John was obsessed with finding records and then actually going as far as to just like find old blues guys. Um, but what the idea that I just remembered, so he would, uh, t- when he talks about, he praises these guys and he uses this incredible language to describe their music. Um, and I feel like this happens a lot. It's the same in the Dylan biography or autobiography. They'll be like, she had a bet. Or, I mean, it's the, his best shit. I mean, the only shit that rings true is for Dave on Ronk and um, what's her name? Karen Dalton for and me. He says his voice is like a dragon, I think, or something. Yeah, you know, the, the like these type of guys, they always describe old blues singers, you know, and I agree in certain respect in certain specific cases, but he'll be like, yeah, he's saying like a dragon or blah blah blah. Um, he he does correctly, in my opinion, describe Skip James' voice as the most melancholic he's ever heard. I'm pretty sure it was Skip James. 
Yeah. Um, just a guy who Gotta fucking be. hated the world. He was also a convicted murderer. Um, and he goes to like see him. He goes, he tries to find him and he goes on this almost like Bayou Odyssey to just search for Skip James and talk to him, um, get him back in the studio basically. And he meets him in the hospital. He has cancer. And then he just kind of, you know, he spends the whole time mythologizing this guy and then he meets him. And it's not really like, don't meet your heroes because he doesn't really idolize him. He does in a certain way, but he just, he's just like, yeah, Skip is, Skip is a fucked up piece of shit. <laughs> well, I feel, I feel like I should edit that. I don't think, I don't think Skip James killed anybody. I think he was uh, a totally upstanding guy. No, no. He killed. Why? Well, I, I don't that? think that would. I don't think that would be in his Wikipedia. Because these guys were like, off the grid. Wait, like what? he describes when he describes going into Mississippi to find him. He's like, this place is still antebellum. Like there, you like we couldn't. He describes, you know, not even being able to be seen looking at a black person or something to that respect. Yeah, I just don't want to when they, throw out there that Skip James killed someone. Like, you know, what is that based on? You know, I could find it in the book, but... Well, yeah, he might say it in the book, but, you know. I could be wrong. I don't think I am. But he talks about all these old blues guys like Lightning Hopkins and um, people like that. Uh, <laughs> like, killed Feeling, people. I don't think had Lightning Hopkins... You you're just saying all blues people killed somebody. No, Lightning Hopkins, or I'm thinking R.L. Burns. No, Lightning Hopkins, yeah, Lightning Hopkins did not kill someone. Um, but yeah, I think he, maybe he mentioned, no, he says Lightning Hopkins. What? Uh, what? Yeah, and then. This is insane. And I, maybe, maybe he just does it Don't because anyone listening to this do excuse not me, excuse me, assume excuse me. We're no one even gives a shit. Murderers. Excuse me. Uh, he. Irrelevant. It's he irrelevant be, what you're saying. Dude, let me just finish my fucking point. Okay. All on a okay, so that's a skip not, impression. He might be just saying that to juxtapose that against how sweet and godly uh, Mississippi John Hurt was, who I think is probably his biggest. Well, skip James hero. was a. I'm reading it now. He was an ordained minister. J skip James was a very nice religious man. He worked. He was a road worker, and then he tried to have a musical career. Didn't work out. So he had a slow life, and then he was rediscovered when he was in his 60s. And he joined the sort of like folk blues, you know, movement of like Dude, 1962. I'm not, I'm not gonna get a letter from started Skip James. Retouring America. I'm just don't, if Skip James's uh, great grandson is listening to this, uh, I got okay. your back. I, from my, from my memory, he describes a lot of these blues guys that he knew. Um, Having as been murderers, having not murderers, but like <laughs> they, they, I mean, they I don't murdered understand someone. the point of this. They're not like serial killers. Yeah, what is the point um, of bringing this up? Because of it, it, it sounds inconclusive, and I feel like this is a false memory, and you suck. No, I mean, it's just interesting. I don't know, it's just interesting. I guess tie it around, like tell me, like, because, because what they you're clearly, thinking here, you know. Well, be, no, they what got was, away. What were you they obviously thinking, Andy. They got away with it. What are you so talking about? I don't know. Maybe he's just making it up as like a sort of a cool way to make them seem 
cool. Well, I think yeah. there is. I know. I don't know which. I think we mentioned him, but there is one blues musician who did kill someone that I that, for sure. That rings for a sure, R.L. Burnside's. Ah, uh, yeah, I could see R.L. Burnside killing someone because he did have a, a a missing era. He started started late. Let me see. Let's see, murder. Control F, murdered. He, yeah, he was convicted of murder and incarcerated at Parchment Farm, uh, yeah. which is a jail That's, that Book of White sang about. Okay, and here's here's the logic here. If these guys, and like I said, these guys weren't obviously convicted of murder. That's why it's not on <laughs> They got away with You're it. You're fucking free? I don't know. I think Can it's just interesting. move on? Because I don't understand what we've... We haven't elucidated anything well, you, other than I, false I just, accusations. Of okay, murder. here's the thing. Here's the thing. I just brought it up, and you got super focused on it, and then we just went down. Because that road. it just was incredibly. You know, we gotta we gotta make sure that we're fact checking this pod. <laughs> okay, well, because murder is a huge accusation, and a lot. Like I Andy, said, a lot of people are gonna be listening to this pod. Not a lot. The people are. Okay, um, he did Sunhouse kill someone? Larry I know King, he says, if Larry King hears this pod and goes on the air, we're going to have uh, two million in, uh, senior citizens walking there around thinking Skip James murdered somebody. Is he broadcasting from hell? Because that he's dead. Poison. Uh, in the pearly gates. Oh, I got it. I got it. American I here. found it. In order to be a great retired country blues singer participating in the Har Har revival... And simultaneously representing and interpreting the Volk soul, you have to have at least one conviction for murder. <laughs> and yeah, then he it's a joke. Off. It's a joke. Sunhouse, Texas Alexander, Hambone Willie Newburn, Book of White, Robert Pillian Williams, Lightning Hopkins, Lead Belly. Well, or also, you could be a also, we have to take Stop account. interrupting. These could be false convictions because we're dealing with. Or uh, you could be a murderer. Here Jim we go. Jim Crow Sal. Or you could be a murderer, but escape prosecution and persecution for venting such normal, aggressive emotions. Skip James, blind Joe Reynolds. I don't know about any of this. And then he says, if you couldn't achieve... You've got to move on. If you couldn't achieve one or both of these, it was okay if you got murdered. (laughs) This is a joke. This is clearly... So, blind. ladies and gentlemen, this is John Fahey's sense of humor, and Andrew is completely oblivious. And we're gonna move on because you. No. I mean, gotta, no. He's a, here's the thing. He's an ethnomusicologist. He's stop he's saying got, that. He's got a he's got or musicologist. I don't know. That's more of a global thing. He's a but human being with knowledge. He's a he's a musicologist. So and not he's not studying it in books. He's got he did actually do that. He went to college for that. But yeah, he he Both, studied folklore yeah. books, at records. Uh, Stanford or something, but UCLA. And then, so he had like boots on the ground and we're finding these guys and becoming like really good friends with them. Yeah, he's like Alan, uh, Alan Lomack, who is famous for, you know, it it may have gone over my head. I, it may have gone over my head, but I, I, I don't think he's, he's, he's not joking. He's completely joking. We need to move on. You have just derailed. I don't know why you're so like, why you're so riled up about this. Because that is totally a joke. That is totally a joke section, and you have failed to realize that. All right, you have the floor. Derailed this. It's not heavily. a joke. We've got I'm to saying, move on. My, let me end with I'm this. I'm not going to let you finish because it's lies. I'm saying 
He knew these guys, and he, they told him stories that they wouldn't tell anybody else. Okay, go ahead. I, I don't even know how to recover from that. Um, okay, maybe we should pivot to the thesis, or the sort of the thesis of the book, or how we think it, we can relate this to the modern listener, and how the modern listener understands American music, and like, talks about American music. You know, you, you brought that up, but I don't think it, uh, I don't think that's what this book is really the thing to be gleaned from this. Well, I like think it, it gleams it is, the excitement and passion John has in understanding of American music, and I think it does convey that to the reader. Well, he describes discovering bluegrass music, like the moment of impact was, you know, when he says, "How this is how bluegrass music destroyed my life. He's listening to this radio station, and they play uh, Bill Monroe and his bluegrass people singing Jimmy Rogers' uh, Blue Yodel number four or seven or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I listened to it, and overall, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of bluegrass music. Um, I've never liked it. And when he describes it, it's sort of the same thing I talked about with, you know, Dylan or him describing old blues singers and stuff. And they, they really overdo it and for that that was the that was my biggest point of detachment was when he started describing bluegrass like it's gonna it's below the earth it's blah 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 okay i gotta derail this point quickly he doesn't he doesn't say that but it's just like i really don't like bluegrass music yes when he when he was lauding it so much i was like this uh okay wait this is bad this is a bad opinion what are you the judge what are you the judge of the pod now it's a little ridiculous you know, bluegrass as a genre has millions of listeners and has a deep rooted tradition. And you're coming along with your fucking Starbucks and your Fender Stratocaster and you're saying, this music sucks, baby. No, I don't like it. D- but do and you so understand no. <laughs> that perhaps you not liking it is merely trigger time, baby? You want to rephrase that? A little baby boy, a little two-year-old baby, Goo Goo Gaga, if you show him a Mozart symphony, he's not going to go, oh, baby, give me some of this, and he's not going to kick away the corn. He's going to want the corn, and he's not going to want Mozart. So you repeat that? you got to understand that if you have not exposed yourself properly to any genre, and I'm talking any genre, if you we travel down to the jungles of the Amazon and they're they're beating on the drums and you go, I don't like that. It's because you just you just arrived. I told you I've been. I to didn't the blue- like onions for the longest the, time, dude. And I, I went physically the, exposed myself to onions. I get and your now dumb I analogy. fucking love yeah. them. You understand? Okay. Uh, I went to the bluegrass festival you in suck. Colorado. <laughs> Several times, and guess what? Several like times, it. folks. That's about. I'm just. We got like Tom, five hours of trigger time here. I'm just telling you, it's not my bag. And I, I'm telling you back to your face. You're telling you me I'm spend wrong. More trigger time. <laughs> it's dater. Hey. Oh, this is. I've heard enough Steve Martin to know I don't like that. Right. I mean, that's okay to say, but. 
Oh yeah, okay. It's okay. You're well, telling me it's just it's, okay it's confusing. I get the word taste comes in, but it is interesting that if if millions of people are liking music, a certain style of music, why why are they liking that style of music? Is it genetic? Like okay, why do you like it? I I'm not trying to put down people who like bluegrass. I'm just saying I couldn't relate to what he said because I don't like bluegrass. Yeah, but I think to say you. Who are you referring to when you say you? And what are you talking? How can about? that not change? I don't. I don't. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> it's not my bag, baby. <laughs> it's not my bag, say. baby. I don't know. It's a say. All I'm saying know. is, it's I think that truth. derailed my entire the entire thesis of the book. And this podcast has to end now. Dude, you got so up in arms, like, god damn. Well, it was just, it was incredibly arrogant. And arrogant. I and I know how it sounds, and I'm not Dude, saying Dude, you're on you, the warp, you're clearly on the warp path since my murder. <laughs> I'm not saying you have to like drops. bluegrass music, but all I'm saying is, if millions of people like something, there is a reason, and you simply have to discover that reason. You don't have to find it, you have to discover it. You have to walk in the footsteps okay okay and all i'm saying is that you've been too busy uh playing uh um civil civilizations five great and you should have been listening to bill monroe's foggy you're mag you're magnetic yeah i don't care i don't care for the tones i don't care for the vibes that i get it's not my bag, you know. It's a Gozo's truth. And you don't think it's a minor coincidence that you didn't grow up in uh, the fucking South in the Appalachia? Sure, maybe I'd be dragging a spoon across a washboard, but I didn't grow up there. And here's where I am, and this is what I like, and that's not one of them. Well, anyway, John would be upset with you. Okay, you can <laughs> fuck him. He would be, yeah. Okay, well. I'm gonna like what <laughs> I'm gonna like what I like. I, yeah, I'm saying you can like what you can like, but uh, don't rag on it, baby, and don't well, say his not, descriptions are bad. I'm not ragging on it. You're all, you're clearly on the warpath, and you're just trying to accuse me. I of mean, being okay, an I did come in a little hot. I'll apologize for that, but you okay, so, wait, slandered John's name, and I can't well, have that. I, I guess I'll say for I'm me, a fan what of this I glimpsed, book, folks. I mean, I am too. We have to we have to give our ratings as well. But um, what Do I want from it? Oh shit! There was a just stop interrupting me for a while. You talked like ninety um, percent of this podcast. I know because you, you haven't read the book in a long time. We well, talked about that. Fucking hell. Okay, so what I gleaned from this book was someone talking about a life in music. And someone who reaches has reached a good amount of fame and success, even when they in their prime, um, notoriety and stuff and influence. Uh, it's someone navigating it in a way where f their fame is not uh, implicitly why you feel you're reading it or they're writing it. You know, yeah. like they. He, John's not writing this shit down because he was famous. It's really just this really interesting, sweet guy who's went through a lot of bad shit 
um, just kind of talking about uh, his navigation through life um, in a way that uh, is it's not really sobering in the sense of you know it's sadness or whatever it just it's it sort of brings you down to earth because mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of um, you know it, it, that whole idea I was talking about goes into I don't know rock biographies are poisoned by the air of fame basically like I said and it goes into this thing of self-worship, the like celebrity. mythologizing. Yeah, like celebrity worship. And it reminded me of um, sort of, it's not similar to mythologizing, but when actors, like when a famous musician is talking about their fame or whatever, and people are so interested in that, it reminds me of when like actors are talking shop to non-acting crowds or something, or me. And it gives us, it's like they could say fucking anything and the, the audience still has no idea what it, what it is or like what it, you know what I mean? Like they could be like, yeah, I shit my pants before I go on set and that's how I kind of get People into just the just gobble it up. Yeah, and they're just like, oh my God, that's so, that's so amazing, you know? And it's the same thing with fame where it's like no one's, you can talk about all you want and like, oh, people find it so interesting. They, at the end of the day, they kind of, never understand what it is um yeah it's just or like super over it. yeah it's it's super over treaded and like it just well i think so poisonous and John, this is just not that which is great but that's not you know that's not the only thing to glean but yeah john fahey reminds me a lot of uh i guess you could say either thomas pynchon or um cormac mccarthy where they just let their work do all the talking and they don't focus on um yeah i guess like handing out tips as if like how they or who they, they became the people that they became just by a series of executing a series of tips um, coincidences yeah it was their their life led almost led itself and they had it they had an intense interest in things and they devoted themselves to like uh, voicing that interest. But like, yeah, they don't sort of mythologize it into this get rich quick scheme or I don't know. They don't try to, I guess, they're just sort of like hip to their egos. Yeah. And it's also, that reminds me when those people are talking about their careers, it's just like, and they'll mention it, but it's like, these people are incredibly lucky. Like they've barely failed. You know, there's obviously a lot of exceptions to that, but, you know, people fail and then succeed. But most of the time, it's like people who are extremely lucky in almost every regard. Yeah. Well, like it's Cormac like, McCarthy okay. was living out of a shack uh, with like no, like zero dollars when he was yeah, like I'm, ta I'm talking about rock. I'm talking about like rock stars. But yeah, that's a good example, I guess. Right. Like rock star people, like actors, directors, you know, people like that. Um you know, it's stuff, st the stuff that actually made them succeed, they're not even aware of. They're, not even <laughs> they're probably aware of it, but they're aware of how, like, bad of a story it is. So they, like, change it, like, manipulate I, I, th I think it's funnier and more compelling that they just are like, they have, they have no, no idea. idea. I feel like they've got to know, like, even, like, re well, they've repressed it, but, like, they know. It's some people that are, people that are, you know, say a director or producer are very uh 
in a interpersonal sense are very scary to other people and it makes people do things for them or they're very hot or something. And, you know, sometimes people know that, but other times it's like, you know, they have no idea, but I don't, I don't know if that even matters, but it's just annoying when they're giving advice basically, because that's when it's like, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, Robert Altman said the best advice I ever took was don't take advice. Yeah. Or don't take advice from people you don't want to be like, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so do you want to give your rating? Is that all you gleaned from it? Uh, you... Well, it, there's, a, there's so much to glean from it, so I would say just you know read this book if you have an interest in American music and its roots, and you just want... This is a great like airplane read. Um, it's just like a funny, introspective, entertaining, sad, uh, beautiful little novel, little autobiography. Yeah, it's not really a novel, but you're also wrong about learning about American music. <laughs> I think he gives you a great, because learning about it through listening to it, he gives you a great little playlist to put together. Not, it's not a great, like I said, it's only like four people. No, I think there's a, there's probably about 25 or so songs that you could pull out of this book. Hmm. I don't know about that, but I'm not going to argue anymore. Um, Rate right, it. What, what's Rate your rating? It, bitch. All right, I go first. I'm going to go with, uh, I'll give it an 825, 820, 820, you have to say it like that, 825,000 or 825%. <laughs> We're on a million, we on a million scale. <laughs> it's like season two will go yeah, into, yeah. I'll upgrade the scale. Um, so I'm going to give this a, golly. It's a good little book. And for what it is, I'm rating it on an autobiography scale. Wait, did I give Meditations an 800%? You gave it a pretty high score. I don't know. Yeah, these are really high scores. But yeah, I'm I wanted to make it a, better than Meditations. This is a juicy book. It's a funny, funny book. It's a sad, sad book. And this book could make you cry. I'm going to give this uh, fucking shit a 910 Jesus. Um, okay, I guess that's um, the end. And we also <laughs> wanted to mention <laughs> Elvis has been horribly um, canonized into the public zeitgeist conversation of American music history. Goodbye. Okay, well, I, I could tell you something about that, but I don't, I'm just going to let it go. Yeah, let's let that go. Um, Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, this has been Brooks Brothers. Brother. We're going to go out with a John Fahey song, even if it's copyrighted. Is that, yeah, is that legal? Fuck the world. Uh, I don't think iTunes has, or any of these services have that sort of shit on. Um, so, yeah, we'll get away with it. All right, bye, guys. Bye. Okay, bye.